0: Peace be with you. Thank you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights Church. We are in week five of a six-week sermon series called Christ of the Covenants. Throughout the Bible, God graciously makes covenants with his people, and these are binding agreements. They They bind him to his people, and he does this because he wants us to know him within the context of a covenant relationship. And so covenant theology traces the successive waves of God's grace, moving history from the failure of Adam to the victory of Jesus. And over the past few weeks, we've seen God's redemptive plan incrementally unfold through Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses. And this week, this week, we'll take a look at God's covenant with David, the king of Israel. So, before we get into the passage, let's put this in context. Where are we now within the story? In the beginning, God appointed Adam as a covenant head over all creation. He quickly disobeyed. but Even though he, even though he disobeyed, God drew near and he mercifully initiated a covenant of grace. He promised that one of Adam's offspring would bring about the death of death and the redemption of of all creation, But the world was broken on account of Adam's rebellion, and so God decreated and recreated the earth. Noah was a new Adam, and God gave him a fresh start, but he failed too. And so we see God call Abraham and establish a family through him. He promised Abraham that he would grow and prosper that family, and that that family would be a blessing to the nations. And last week, we saw God do just that, grow Abraham's family into a nation, and through a man named Moses, teach them how to be a blessing to the nations. Unfortunately, like Adam and like Noah, Israel failed to obey. The book of Judges tells us that every person in Israel did whatever he wanted, whatever seemed right in his own eyes, because There was no king in Israel. And so God gave them kings. Now, King David was not Israel's first king. Israel's first king was named Saul. And Saul quickly broke the covenant and disobeyed God. In fact, God uses Saul to show the nation of Israel why having a human king is actually inferior to just obeying God in the first place. King Saul was tall and handsome and mighty in battle. Obvious choice for Israel's first king. But in the end, he was unfaithful, insecure, and selfish. And so God begins to orchestrate the fall of Saul and the rise of David. In many ways, God's covenant with David, here in 2 Samuel 7, it's the climax of the Old Testament. When the rightful king takes his throne... The kingdom has come. And we'll see that that's true next week as well with the new covenant, and King Jesus. So establishing David's dynasty, his his line of kings, it's a key step in God's master plan to defeat Satan, sin, suffering, and death. It's a climax of the Old Testament. Now there are four important events that provide context for this covenant. Number one, after a long and bitter civil war, David has finally taken the throne. And the civil war was between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel. All right. Number two, David has made Jerusalem the capital city of Israel. Jerusalem was located right in between uh, the northern and southern kingdoms, So it was a prime location for unifying the people. The, the name Jerusalem actually means city of peace. Number three. David has brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant represented the throne of God. So its arrival in Jerusalem linked David's kingship to the rule of God. David is God's chosen king. Number four, God has given the nation of Israel complete rest from its enemies. Both the king and the kingdom were safe and secure in the land of promise, enjoying peace like never before. God's new humanity, as we talked about last week. Israel, God's new humanity, has returned to paradise. And that brings us to 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, "'See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent.' And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So here we see David sensing that something's out of balance. It's not right that he should live in a palace while the ark of God should dwell in a tent. Remember, the ark of God represented God's throne. And so really, David is right to see a problem here. It appears that his desire to build a temple was was a humble desire. The text doesn't give us any indication that he had ulterior motives for wanting to build this temple. David seemed to be doing the right thing for the right reason, and the prophet Nathan even affirmed his desire. And then we see in 1 Kings chapter 8, God himself affirms that desire, which is strange because here God challenges David. Let's keep reading in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Israel, from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, Will make you a house. Now that's a long passage, but we'll break it down a bit. In verses 6 and 7, God is essentially saying, I've been dwelling in a tent ever since my people left Egypt. I've been dwelling in a tent for centuries. What makes you think I need a temple? I don't need a temple. And this, this is utterly profound. Think about it. Think about the implications of what God is saying here. The king of all creation wants to identify with his people. They were traveling through the wilderness. They were living in tents, and God wanted to be right there with them. Our God values nearness. Our God values proximity. He wants to dwell with his people. He wants to be with us. That is no small thing. This is also a huge reason why sojourn values proximity. This is partly why we're willing to be so bold as to ask some of you to sell your homes and move to new neighborhoods so that God's presence can be manifest to new neighbors in order to put the presence of God within walking distance of people who are far from him. As we'll see in a bit, the church is God's new temple, the place where God's presence dwells. So we are not, we are not trying to put Sojourn's brand in a new neighborhood. We are trying to plant the presence of God and the people of God in a new neighborhood. So we want to be near to one another, and we want to be near to our neighbors because our God values nearness. In verse 9, God promises to make for David a great name. And then in verse 11, God promises to make David a house. So God says, don't make me a house. I'm going to make you a house. Now, there's a play on words taking place here. Uh, when we read this passage in the English, we see the word house several times throughout this passage. But in the original Hebrew, this word house has several meanings, including home, palace, temple, or dynasty. So there's more going on here than appears on the surface. David says, and we know this from the context, David is saying, I shouldn't be living in a palace while you're dwelling in a tent, so I'm going to build you a temple. And God replies, no thanks, I don't need a temple. Instead, I'm going to build you a dynasty. And that brings us to God's covenant with David. Let's read beginning in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So here we see God making five covenant promises with David. If you're taking notes, uh, please write these down because we're going to return to them in just a couple minutes. Five promises to David. Number one, God will establish the kingdom through David's flesh and blood, David's offspring. Number two, David's heir will end up building the house for God, David's heir will end up building this temple. Number three, David's heir will enjoy a father-son relationship with God. Number four, David's heir will be punished for sin, but not completely cut off. And number five, David's kingdom will last forever. It will be an everlasting kingdom. These are incredible promises. And for the most part, David was a faithful king, faithful servant of God. Faithful leader of God's people. David also messed up, right? In the end, though, as we've seen throughout this sermon series, God's promises, God's promises are immovable and steadfast. He he stays true to his promises despite us, not because of us. Great is his faithfulness, we just sang, right? Right? Great is his faithfulness. And we see the first four promises here partially fulfilled in David's son, King Solomon. Number one, Solomon was David's flesh and blood, David's immediate offspring. Number two, Solomon built the temple for God. Number three, Solomon enjoyed an intimate father-son relationship with God. Number four, Solomon was punished for his sins and idolatry, though though not completely cut off from God's promises. So we see Solomon fulfilling four of these promises. But the fifth promise, that David's dynasty, David's kingdom, would last forever, it appears to have failed. David's dynasty ended up lasting about 400 years, which is a really long time. It dwarfed every other dynasty from this time period but ultimately, it did not last forever. God promised that David's kingdom would last forever, and yet it ended, right? A few centuries after David, the people of Israel are once again cast out of the land of promise and forced to live in exile. It appears as though As Israel is in exile, it appears as though every promise from Adam to Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, it's all in jeopardy. The people have essentially returned to Egypt. And all of this good work, all that God has done, seems undone. How will he make good on his promises? Did he lie? Has he abandoned us once and for all? Legitimate questions to be asking. But no, he hasn't. God will fulfill. He will stay true to each and every promise in the person and work of Jesus Christ. King Solomon had fulfilled some of God's promises to David. But this was only a shadow, only a shadow of the fulfillment that was coming in Christ. Let's take another look at those five promises. We're going to see how Jesus fulfills each and every one of them. Number one, God will establish the kingdom through David's flesh and blood. Jesus was born as a descendant of King Jacob. Both Joseph and Mary were descendants of King Jacob. Number two, David's heir will end up building the house for God. David's heir will end up building the temple. Jesus was the new temple. In his body, the fullness of God dwelled bodily. He was the new temple. And his body was rebuilt in three days. Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. And now we are his body. We are that temple. And Jesus is building us. Number three. David's heir will enjoy a father-son relationship with God. This is the obvious one. Jesus was the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. This is is a father-son relationship like no other, unrivaled intimacy. And number four, David's heir will be punished for sin but not completely cut off. Jesus was punished for our sin on the cross, but he was not cut off. He was resurrected and restored to glory. Number five, David's kingdom will last forever. It will be an everlasting kingdom. Whereas Solomon failed here, whereas whereas David's dynasty appeared to fade away, Jesus fulfills this fifth promise. As David's offspring, he has inaugurated an eternal kingdom And our king dwells here in our midst with peace and justice and righteousness. King Solomon was only a shadow of what was to come. King Jesus fulfilled these promises completely. He was the true offspring promised to David. And really, he was the true offspring promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. He has come to bear the curse to crush the head of the serpent, to bring redemption to God's people, to God's covenant people. And now he's seated on the throne. And as we'll sing in a bit, to him who's seated on the throne, all glory be forever. What does this mean for us today? What does all this mean? I've already mentioned this a couple times, but I do want to establish a crucial New Testament truth, that the church is the new temple of God. 2 Corinthians 6.16 tells us that we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And Ephesians 2 tells us that we are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, we are God's new temple. And we don't build this temple either. God builds it for us, and He builds it for Himself. He dwells here in our midst. His house is our house, His temple is our palace. The church is our royal palace. All the glory and splendor and riches of Solomon's temple are transcended here in our midst as the Holy Spirit is piecing us together brick by brick until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, I know that our everyday lives within the church do not look look like what I'm describing. If you're in a neighborhood parish, you know that. We are broken people and life within the church is messy. But what I'm describing here is no less a spiritual reality for us. And we get the joy and the privilege of joining together with Father, Son, and Spirit to take this spiritual reality and make it a physical reality for the good of our neighbors. God's temple is our palace. We share a roof with the king of creation. So clearly, God values nearness, right? God values proximity. He is near. He is always near. And covenant theology tells the story of how God has drawn near. His desire for nearness was beautifully manifested in the person of Christ, who took up residence in a tent of flesh and wandered the wilderness of this world for our sake. He walked amongst us. And then, God's desire for nearness was ultimately fulfilled in the person of the Holy Spirit who comes and actually dwells within us. You cannot be nearer than that. So, today, the church is where God is most near. And that is why we want to multiply parishes and plant churches in new neighborhoods because we want God to be near to those who are far. That is why some of us will be called to leave the comfort of home and step into the wilderness. That's why some of us will be called to live in tents. But remember, if you're living in the wilderness, God wants to be there with you. And if you're living in a tent, God wants to live there too. We are never alone. We are never alone, and this is never more true than when we draw near to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We come daily to the temple of God. We come daily to this temple of God. It doesn't mean this room or this building. It means these people. We come daily to this temple of God. Here at Sojourn, that means joining and loving and serving a neighborhood parish. You come daily to the temple of God by joining and loving and serving a neighborhood parish. Come daily to the temple of God. So, it's a real joy. It has been for me, I hope it has been for you. A real joy to see Christ fulfill each and every one of these covenants. It is awe-inspiring to see the manner in which God remains true to his promises. We are so blessed, so blessed in this age of the church to be able to look back and study all of this. This study is well worth our time exploring the manner in which we have been redeemed. But I want to conclude this sermon today with a cliffhanger. Imagine... I want us to imagine ourselves living in between the end of David's dynasty and the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're in exile. Imagine yourselves in exile. God is silent. He has been for centuries. We've seen wave after wave of God's grace, and now the waves have all receded. All is quiet. and We're asking questions like, where is God? Does he even remember his promises? Does he hear us groaning like he did when we were in Egypt? And the curtain closes on the Old Testament, right there. But we, as the people of God, see, looming on the horizon, the faint contours of a tidal wave of grace. And we know when that that wave hits the shore, Nothing is going to be the same. Everything is going to be changed. And that's what we get to talk about next week, the new covenant in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that not only is your word true, but it's beautiful. And we see, as we study these covenants, that, it, that we are exalted by you. And that is a wonderful, humbling thing. But ultimately, the Bible is not about us. It's about Jesus. And, I, and I, I pray that you would give us eyes to see every way in which Scripture points to him. Cause us by your Spirit to worship you more deeply with greater knowledge. Help us to see how, how good it is to have a covenant-keeping, faithful God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.